The Holy Gospel according to Matthew chapter 22. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere, and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the text. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Excuse me. Two elderly women were walking around the grounds of an old cemetery when they came upon a tombstone with this inscription, Here lies a politician and an honest man. Good heavens, one of them exclaimed, isn't it awful they had to put two different people in the same grave? Well, you might find that to be an amusing little joke, or you might find it to be a sad little piece of commentary, but both joke and commentary are predicated on the pretty much cynical assumption that you can't be, it's not possible to be, both a politician and honest. I'm not totally cynical. But I will say that a lot of times I do find myself taking steps in the direction of pretty darn cynical when I hear politicians talk about matters of faith. And I'm not saying this is, this is good. I'm just saying this is me. I'm almost automatically cynical then because my pretty much knee-jerk assumption is that those statements are usually far less about matters of faith than they are about matters of politics, sounding to me not like they're calling me to worship, but rather that they are trolling for my vote. Which our gospel text for today makes clear is absolutely nothing new. For in that reading, a religious agenda is publicly raised as an absolute pretense for what is absolutely a political purpose. And so Matthew tells us of a group of Pharisees and Herodians. These are odd bedfellows, actually, but they're united on this occasion because they have a common enemy, Jesus, and they want to do something about him, preferably get rid of him entirely, but at the very least damage him politically. Because at this point, he has actually got a double-digit lead in pretty much all of the polls, and people aren't buying that it's fake news. And so they know that they've got to do something, and so they talk it over, and they decide to ask Jesus this really sneaky, clever trick question to set him up to look bad. And then, of course, you know, take a plunge in the polls. And to make sure that this political after-effect of their trap is maximized, they ask him this question at a big event with lots of people around. And In fact, it's being covered live by all the major networks. Actually, they don't jump right into the question. They kind of start with, well, um, call it what you need to, but make sure you're wearing hip boots if you walk through it because it's deep. Teacher, they say, 
we know that you are sincere. They are saying this, of course, insincerely. And we know that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They don't actually think that's true at all. And you don't play favorites. You treat rich people the same as you treat poor people. They actually do know that that's true, but they hate him for it because they're rich and he shows them no deference for it. You're a good man, they go on to say, who just straightforwardly and transparently speaks God's truth the way God has given it to you. And my goodness, we still respect you for that. We really do. They actually, of course, really don't. And so they now say, angling, angling into their question, we've come to you because we really need the help of somebody as godly as, as, you, as, as you to tell us, because we're really struggling uh, with this one. So as a man of God, please, please tell us, is it lawful? And by lawful, they mean lawful according, not to the laws of the land, but to the laws of God. Is it lawful to pay the emperor, to pay Caesar taxes? Or is it not? This is a fully loaded question, carefully crafted, intending to be a trap that Jesus stumbles into as a lose-lose situation where he looks bad to somebody no matter what he says. And that clearly crafted trickiness was based on the fact that this payment of taxes by the Jews to Rome was a big-time front-page and opinion-page political issue in Jerusalem at the time with the Jews themselves deeply divided on the matter. The ruling class, the rich folks, actually favored payment of the tax, which sounds a little bit weird, right? Because the stereotypical rich person, we think, is opposed to taxes, except that the rich folks in, in first century Jerusalem, like the high priests, for example, actually have, were able to hold on to their richly lucrative positions and their high standing because of Roman support. So they supported Rome in return. Then on the other extreme, there were this group of people called the Zealots who zealously opposed the tax and they also zealously opposed Rome in any way they could, including doing so with violence when they had the chance because God, they said, and not Rome's Caesar was their king. Zealots were regarded by the rich and the Romans as, as extremist religious terrorists and in some ways they were. Between those two partisan and powerful extremes were found the, by and large, powerless majority of Jews who didn't like the tax, but for the sake of some peace and stability, they at least tolerated it, more or less resigned themselves to it, although in their heart of hearts they didn't like the Romans at all either, as they didn't like the fact that so much of their hard-earned minimum wages ended up back in Rome without doing them any good at all. Taxation without representation is, after all, tyranny, right? So back to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Here's the trap. You probably already see it. If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay the tax, then the powerless and the poor, whom the taxes are bleeding and exploiting, would see him as just one more buddy of the powerful and the rich, and he would lose his appeal among the masses who right now are thronging to him. If, on the other hand, he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he could be painted as a zealot, 
as a radical anti-Roman insurgent who, with crowds like that around him, the Romans had better step in and do something about. As I said, a sneaky, lose-lose question with the sneaky Pharisees and Herodians positive that no matter how Jesus answers politically, he's going to take a hit. But Jesus' response, um, surprise, surprise, not at all, avoids their clever trap. He does so by holding up one of the Roman coins that would have been used to pay the Roman tax. He had to borrow the coin, of course, um, because it turns out his job as as the savior of the world was, was not a salaried position. Plus, unlike some who talk about him a lot these days, he had never even begun to dream of something called a prosperity gospel. And so he had to borrow a coin upon which was a picture of the current Roman emperor and this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, majestic son of the majestic God. Imprinted on Roman coins, in other words, were the words, in God we trust, except the God was Caesar himself, which actually, if you think about it, might be more honest than the number of people in our country who carry money with the inscription in God we trust, but it turns out the God they trust is the money itself because it is what they give their hearts and lives to and in some cases sell their souls for. Let me borrow one of your coins, Jesus says, and then looking at the picture, he says, whose image is this? The emperor's, they answer. Well, then there you have it, Jesus says. Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give to God the things that are God's, or as the older translations used to say, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. It's a masterful response which just so very easily sidesteps the intended trap. It is also a response, however, which is often used to justify what we in this country have chosen to call the separation of church and state which does so by interpreting that what Jesus is telling us here is that with one part of your life you give the state what is rightfully the state's and with another part of life you give God what is rightfully God's with the added but usually unspoken assumption that in this land of the free with the rest of your life which is also understood to be the majority of your life right you get what is rightfully yours in your pursuit of happiness which leaves life all neatly compartmentalized. Here's the church compartment of my life, Sunday morning, 10.30. Here's the state compartment of my life, and the rest, and the most, is the me compartment, where everything is mine. It's all mine. Except what? Except, yes, give Caesar what is Caesar's, because his is the image stamped on it. But, two, give God what is God's because God's image is upon it. Ring any bells, biblically speaking? How about a Genesis 1 kind of bell? As in, in the beginning, on the sixth day, God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female, God created them. What is rightfully to be given to God because God's is the image stamped upon it? You. 
The point, in other words, isn't a little for the church compartment, a little for the state compartment, and then the rest, the most, for the me compartment. The point is, whether I'm giving the state its due or whether I'm giving the church its due, am I giving God what is rightfully God's due, which, biblically speaking, means in all I do, am I giving God all of me? For this oft-quoted verse, it turns out, really isn't it all about the separation of church and state. This verse is about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. For this verse says, yes, give to Rome, give to Washington, D.C. their due as you live your life, but give them only their due. Not more than that. For God is life. The text is a clear call, in other words, to have no allegiance in your life higher than or even anywhere near as high as your allegiance to God. Which means, well, where do you even start? Surely in our cases it means, as I touched upon a few weeks ago, it means to be Americans and patriotic ones at that who pray for our country, pray for God to bless America, but don't be going around thinking God is American, or even particularly partial to Americans. For God is the one who will bless America insofar as America chooses paths that God considers worth blessing, which can only be done by not forgetting that God's partiality, biblically, absolutely, clearly, is for the poor. And it means to be politically active as a Republican, as a Democrat, and to vote by all means. Just don't be thinking, don't be thinking God is a Republican or a Democrat. For God, being God, is the one whose compass both Democrats and Republicans are to be measured by if their desire, not cynically, politically, but truly, righteously, is to appeal not to partisanship, but to righteousness. Which means, for example, if you're a Democrat, uh, you and Jesus do need to work out, or work through the fact that all life, including unborn life, is life that God cherishes. And if you're a Republican, on the other hand, you and Jesus need to work through the fact that you don't get to call yourself pro-life. If the system you voted for literally provides armies of doctors and treatments for the President of the United States while striving to unmandate guaranteed health care and other care for the newborn of the poor no longer sheltered in the womb. Do you see the point? This text is not about various little compartments in our life, one of which is God's. This text is about who and what is the ultimate allegiance in our lives. It's about giving God what is God's because God is God. And what is God's is everything there is, including everything there is of you. Which I don't know about you. Well, actually, I think I might. If the plank in his kingdom's platform is me giving him absolutely all of me, nothing held back, then um, to mix a metaphor, I am absolutely in over my head without a paddle. I mean, that kind of righteousness is more than I can manage, right? Right? 
Let me remind me, and let me remind you as well, that the one whose standard is that high is neither politician nor priest, neither church nor state. For the one here and elsewhere espousing a standard of righteousness that is perfect righteousness is Jesus, Lord of all, who when he asks for all of you, doesn't ask only for all that you've managed, all that you've accomplished, all that you're proud of. For when he asks for all of you, he actually means all of you, meaning specifically to include the things you've managed, only to the degree that you've managed to mess them up. Which is to say that when Jesus is the one saying, I want all of you, he's not satisfied until the all of you you give him includes the all of your sin. Upon which he then stamps gently the image of a cross. Upon which he, for the love of you, gave all of him for all of you, including the all that is common to us all, that being the all within all of us whose need is for the forgiveness of sin. Amen.